McKinsey has highlighted the impacts of government actions on business. It's more likely to impact a company than any other stakeholder except for customers. So I do think it would be amiss to not engage in the government. Welcome to Croptastic, the Interplant podcast where your host, Shelly Aronov, explores the global future of agriculture and food. In this episode, we're joined by Laura Wood, an environmental and agricultural lobbyist who works on behalf of clients like IPSA, the Independent Professional Seed Association. Laura previously led federal affairs for Syngenta and Indigo Ag. She shares with Shelly some of the ins and outs of lobbying, as well as tips for how startups can engage in the process and help shape the future of agriculture. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Croptastic, the podcast by Interplant, where we talk about the future of agriculture and people that are influencing that future. Today's guest is Laura Wood, who is an ag lobbyist and working currently with IPSA, which is the independent uh, seed association. We've had a couple of guests from there, like Todd Martin. Laura, so great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks so much. Laura, can we start by um, hearing more about your background and also what is it that you do as a lobbyist for IPSA? Yeah, sure. I grew up on a farm in Kansas and have spent about 15 years in agriculture policy with a keen interest in government. I'm an attorney and you know there are a lot of regulatory issues in the agriculture industry as one of our major industrial components of, of the economy. When you think about the role of government in that space, the annual spend on ag subsidies is 540 billion roughly per year. So, you know, the role of government in agriculture is enormous. When you think about, you know, what are all the varying factors impacting the policymaking, uh, Farm Doc Daily from University of Illinois earlier this summer kind of, I think, listed the most important ways to think about managing strategic risk and Changes in government policies, one of them, geopolitical conflicts, technological innovations, and variations in the environment. So I work in policies or regulations that kind of fit into those buckets. I mean, I completely agree. It's such a huge impact on our food system is the government's uh, role, especially with some of the row crops and like soybeans and corn. Definitely something that you need to be an expert to understand. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a hard time with it. Can you talk specifically about what are the top legislative concerns for the IPSA members? Sure. So when you think of IPSA members, we're talking about small businesses, right? The backbone of really the full economy and certainly the rural economy. So, you know, when you're running a small business costs and keeping costs down and serving your customers is front of front of mind. Access to technology, a good regulatory playing field. These are the things that the smaller seed companies and family-owned businesses kind of face day in, day out. Their their name is on the bag. So when they're serving farmers, they, they really have personal relationships and an individualized approach. And um, by the way, what percentage of seeds are um, are in the hands of the smaller independents versus the larger seed companies? Well... IPSA represents about 125 seed companies, and this is roughly 20% of the market in corn and soybeans. Got it. So I, I guess as a follow-up to that, um, as you work through encouraging policies in seed genetics and improving competition, what is the main effort there? What are the goals for the independent seed companies? 
when President Biden came into office, he signed an executive order. This was July 2021, uh, promoting competition in the American economy. And this certainly impacts the seed market. You know, over over the last two, three decades, the amount of consolidation has limited the number of seed companies that can compete. Mm-hmm. And the administration is really looking into this. And it's not just general antitrust. It's also intellectual property, environmental laws, and kind of looking at the nexus of incentivizing innovation across uh, departments of government and how they work together to promote competition. And then in March of 2023, this year, the USDA uh, put out a report in response to the executive order. And this is information on the USDA MS website if you want to read the report. But really, many commenters expressed concern about difficulty in accessing information on the IP rights and some things around that. There really, for IPSA members, is a question of how can we best promote uh, innovation? And so, you know, IPSA was very um, involved in helping think about what that report should consider. And in following up now, there'll be a working group of USDA, Patent Office, FTC, and DOJ kind of looking at some of these issues and really thinking about this combination of regulations that might help small companies compete. Yeah, I mean, this is um, something I've noticed the, the more time I spend in the space is how opaque a lot of the of the topics are and just digging up the information around some of the technologies, uh, even basic stuff like what's a trait versus what is a breeding product and what's the AP background behind it and how unique is it and how long has it been around? It is almost impossible to find that information. And even when you do, it's not in writing, it's, it's from conversations. It does feel like it could have been easier than that. Well, I think it's a question of the American trajectory in research in some respects, because we've been the envy of the world for a long time with our land grant system and with, you know, the the technology that brought us to where we are today and the breeding that innovating there. So um, now really investment in U.S. um, public food and ag research has fallen quite a lot. And, you know, China's funding has grown, you know, so we're at a competitive disadvantage if we don't kind of reassess how we want to, you know, spur innovation in America. What are some of the options? What can happen next? Well, we're keenly interested in what happens at EPA on kind of its PIPs regulation. We're looking at what this working group um, does. And of course, we're in a farm bill cycle. So there may be some other pathways there. How does that, I'm assuming the farm bill impacts things tremendously and takes away a lot of the attention. The farm bill is a large undertaking. And especially in the environment we're in, where we've had a pause on our appropriations process ahead of the August recess. So when Congress is back in September, it's going to be extremely complicated to move bills. And there's a high probability of government shutdown. And so to say that there is a lack of consensus on the farm bill is really only one of many things going on where it's becoming 
quite unclear how how we're going to get through this in in the next month and a half. Yeah, that sounds um, sounds like you've got a lot of work ahead of you then. So I'm curious, what um, from your experience, because you grew up on the farm, how has this impacted you and and some influenced your work today? Yeah, I don't I don't believe you have to have grown up on a farm to work in the agriculture industry. It's very robust, very diverse in terms of issues and areas. But what I did find was I had a perspective uh, that many people don't have because they haven't had these experiences. And so uh, I, I really think that there's a lot of risk in the system. We're trying to transition to a more circular system, partly enabled by ag tech for sure, but also in light of major inflationary pressures where we're probably heading for harder, not easier times in food costs. And of course, we're all aware of the environmental and health externalities that our um, population faces globally as well. And so I, I just think we have many challenges, but many opportunities to work in this industry, uh, whether or not you come from a farming background. Yeah. And I wonder, I'd like to maybe switch gears a little bit from and talk about it for the ag tech startup audience. So as someone who uh, runs a company in the space, we spend a lot of time thinking about several audiences, right? Whether it's our customers, our partners, investors, and the government is a huge audience as well, but it is incredibly hard to think about managing um, more around all of the policy and everything. And how do you contribute to this conversation? What's your advice on lobbying for startups? Do you do it? Do you not do it? When do you even do it? And what's the best path? Well, McKinsey has highlighted the impacts of government actions on business. It's more likely to impact a company than any other stakeholder except for customers. So I do think it would be a miss to not engage in the government. I represented um, and led federal and industry relations for a multinational, for startup, and for an NGO. And I work with many ag tech startups today. I I think that there are there's so much entrepreneurial spirit and innovation going on that these are the exact kind of people thinking into the future about how to solve problems that we want helping shape policy for the future. So I do think it's important to engage. But well, Laura, this, what, this is Sean. If I if I just wanted a follow up question because I think. I was kind of bring it back to the farm bill a little bit because that, that's such a huge piece of legislation. It, and I think it's given the size and given the impact that it has on most people, if not every person in the United States, it's not very well understood. So I'm, I'm curious from in the context of Shelley's last question, when we're talking about ag tech startups and that sort of thing, what's their plug in for the farm bill? I mean, why should break it down for me a little bit, if you couldn't for the audience? who might not be super familiar with all that the farm bill encompasses, because it is a huge, in terms of scope bill. Why why should an ag tech startup care about the farm bill? The farm bill is authorized every five years. And so that's a relatively quick timeline to think about large or medium or even small changes in what is now a trillion dollars of a baseline. This does include the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So if we set that aside, we're still talking about billions and billions spent annually on, at its core, managing risk. We can debate how well or or not programs may or may not be achieving that. But overall, that is the goal. 
And so when you think of supporting farmers with, you know, tools like insurance or other kinds of disaster payments or whatever it might be that uh, a, a huge part of farm income comes from the government. And, and so if you're a startup, you may uh, have customers that are in, well, you will have customers in, in the system. And so you need to understand like all the moving parts and consequences, consequences of decisions that farmers make. I think a lot of times not understanding the system um, makes for rookie errors out of the gate. So, you know, startups really need help with the complexity of the landscape that exists as they're trying to get to a landscape for the future. It's fascinating, actually, the insight that you just dropped. And I, I want to point this out because this is this is probably the most succinct lens that I've viewed the farm bill through before. But it's the fact that it's about risk mitigation, because I think at the end of the day, you know, pr- particularly from the context of Interplant, we talk about risk mitigation because that's really what farming is. It's the mitigation of risk over every over environment and inputs and all that other stuff. But to break the farm bill down into specifically a, a large omnibus effort on the part of the government to mitigate risk in American agriculture is particularly insightful. Um, and I'd love to then, and but I'd love to delve into that a little more because help me out with how that happens. Obviously, farm insurance. I mean, we'll break out SNAP, obviously, because that that was kind of a, an add-on, historically speaking. So just drilling down into the specifics of risk mitigation, obviously the crop insurance, but help help me and the audience understand what aspects of that beyond just the insurance, like how those policies might in fact impact risk mitigation on a farm. Yeah, the policies are broken down by titles and they they really do overlap on the farm. And so even if just starting in the first title and you think about price support and um marketing a crop. That's a totally different skill from the Title V credit, you know, and how how you access credit and equity in that and um, beginning farmers, you know, needing to go into an incredibly capital intensive job. Yeah, you know, my my title I spend the most time in is Title II, and that's the conservation title. Um, so when you think of mitigating risk, we're really talking a lot about soil health here or water, or biodiversity. And, you know, MIT talks about soil containing three times more carbon than all of Earth's vegetation and twice the amount that's currently in the atmosphere. It can be stored, but not without its challenges. Um, you know, climate change making it even harder. It, it, it's it's really about supporting farmers um, who are, you know, putting in buffer strips or helping protect waterways along the Mississippi River or you name it to help try and preserve this um, soil that we rely on. Energy title, when you think about renewables or horticulture, you know, there there are so many overlapping programs that USDA administers to help mitigate risk. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm also curious when we talk about mitigating risk, particularly in agriculture, but then also serving the those small businesses that you talked about being IPSA members. And I'm curious if if there's overlap or if there's mission creep, because I, I mean, as a small business, particularly farms, succession and inheritance are hot buttons. Every time I talk to a farmer, that's, that's something that comes up. And I, I'm not sure, and I may be wrong, so I, I'd love to be corrected if I'm, if I'm off base here, but 
is is that succession or estate planning? I, I'm I'm given to imagine that's probably not part of the farm bill. So my question, I guess, is: Is there mission creep, or are there areas outside of the farm bill that maybe are maybe not even related to agriculture? Estate planning, in particular, might be part of the tax code. As a lobbyist with an, with a, with a group like IPSA, where they are small small business owners, is there mission duplicity or or or, or variability in, in what you're doing? No two days are the same. And there are so many policies that impact an ag company. When you think about tariffs on products coming in, um, when you think about, yes, all the tax issues um, in the farm economy and in business economy, right? Like just tax in general is a huge area when when you think about employees and and issues around labor you know there there are many laws outside of the farm bill and i would say when i'm working with corporate clients many many issues come up that have nothing to do with the farm bill yeah imagine so just kind of bringing it back to ips again when we talk about um some of the most I'm curious because you, it sounds like you have a, a number of different clients. You have the IPSA, which are small business, and then you have some of the corporate and maybe some of the ag tech. Are each of those camps focused on particular challenges? Do they face similar? I would imagine, obviously, because they align in an industry, they, they face similar challenges. But as they striate for each category, do they face particular challenges? And, and how do you, as, as, as a lobbyist, adjust for that? Or do you need to? Every everyone's unique and everyone's challenges are are a little different. I would say um, one key thing that comes to mind is just the budgets that you know might be required for lobbying around different issues and and what that might do. Or does your um, small business versus large company have an employee pack? You know, there are a lot of factors that make each strategy different or unique depending on where a company's, you know, small C company might be situated. But as an association, I think uh, they're able to raise the industry by working together. And I see a lot of value in that. And then this is kind of, a, this might be a little far afield, but I'm curious when you look, uh, I mean, Farm Bill obviously has its own issues that we're facing in in Washington inside the Beltway. Um, I, I've heard, you know, everyone's got their own prognostications. Um, are you taking odds on when this gets settled? When we'll actually have a farm bill? Uh, I've heard, you know, before the November 24 election cycle, everyone's going to want to have something to go home and campaign on. Are you taking bets? <laughs> I am not. I really think it's going to be difficult to pass. I think a lot of people are relatively happy with the 18 bill. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act put a large amount of investment in parts of the Farm Bill as well, the Farm Bill programs. And so there aren't a million pressure points pushing this in light of the political um, space that we highlighted, but it will get done. It's just it's just not going to happen as fast as we might want. Got it. And uh, this is something that we usually ask guests. Uh, because we are kind of looking at the future of agriculture. Most of the time, our guests are in ag tech and are thinking about the, what what the future looks like in the farm in, in terms of, you know, the latest, uh, where autonomy is going to go or where the technology is going to go. 
But from a policy level, what do you think uh, in in five years and 10 years, will policy be significantly different or how does that evolve on the farm for, for agriculture? I think that government moves slower than the private sector for a reason. Um, we don't want whiplash in our policies. We want certainty for business. But I do see many changes ahead. I saw a recent analysis that natural climate solutions could provide 37% of cost-effective CO2E mitigation needed through 2030. And the you know sector where ag, forestry, and other land use could do about 20% of that. I've seen numbers around, you know, just what that then might mean in terms of economic generation. So new jobs, new tech, new things going on. And I think this is going to be spurring a lot of change. Will policies in 10 years look to that? I think it might even be further out, but yes. And I I really believe that kind of what's been going on in the last two years is, is starting to, to move in this direction. Um, but as we know, like change takes a lot of time. Well, Laura, I'm curious, um, before we wrap up, I completely agree. These things take time and, and they need to. Um, but obviously from a, sp- a startup perspective, it's also hard to do anything planning for 10 years down the line. What, do you have some tactical advice for entrepreneurs out there on how to get involved and, and what's the most, you know, the most efficient way for them to get involved? I just looked up the stat I was digging for. So I go back to the UN number, the 540 billion spent globally annually as probably requiring a paradigm shift versus change on change on change, how laws tend to evolve. It almost needs to shift. The World Economic Forum is the one that had looked at the nature of positive policies that could attract 10 trillion in new annual business value and create 395 million jobs by 2030. That's a, Those are some big numbers, but I think that should inspire innovators to keep engaging in policy. Policy is you know, man-made, right? And we're a nation of law. So we influence them and we change them for the times. And if not for more voices in this space, um, we may not even be this far along. So I, I do think there's huge opportunity, but it's not going to happen without you know, tons of engagement as well. I completely agree. Otherwise, the voices we hear are just the voices that are already predominant. But it is daunting um, to figure out even where to start, right? So if, uh, if you have any advice on that, I think our listeners probably would be fascinated. Yeah, I think there are two ways to engage in politics. I used to teach American politics at George Washington University, and it was really fun to think with students and, and you know, it keeps you sharp. The, the two things that really move politics are voices and money. And so you can join or create trade associations like IPSA, where you align with like-minded entrepreneurs or other small innovative companies to try and push policy. You can join NGOs and, and a lot of good um policy work gets done from the NGOs and really deep expertise and deep science. You could also go to the money side and get more involved in campaigns and 
uh, engage in in kind of the fundraising side of politics for uh, helping elect members that you think are going to put policies in place that you support and that you want to see. Those are the two most basic ways to think about, you know, how to how to start. Thank you. That makes sense. And that's something that we definitely think about a lot um, as of recently. It's been great to have you here today. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you. And that'll do it for this episode of Croptastic. Thank you again to Laura Wood for joining us today. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter account at inner underscore plan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>